0: Hi guys, this is John McGann from Max Tennis Academy in Ireland and I'm here with my co-host Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis in Spain Together we've created the podcast Control the Coronables which includes some of the top players from around the world Our objective is very simple We want to be able to educate entertain and energise the tennis community during this very difficult period that we're all going through Hope you enjoy our next podcast
1: welcome to episode 23 of control the coronables in today's episode we have one of the biggest names in world tennis currently the money ball of tennis Craig O'Shaughnessy Craig talks through the way that he has used data over the last few years he goes into some depth of the experience that he had working with the current ATP world number one, Novak Djokovic. He dispels some of, the, some of the, the different challenges that come his way to do with statistics. And he also talks about how he was a journalist and actually numbers wasn't his first love how he fell then into this uh, listen listen carefully learn lots take take it back to your coaching but as you'll hear from the podcast make sure you, that you interpret all of your statistics and your numbers the correct way sit back whatever you're doing and and, and enjoy the show here's Craig O'Shaughnessy so, so Craig O'Shaughnessy it's great to have you on the podcast control the coronables welcome Daniel, John, my pleasure. Great to speak with you guys. So a little introduction for, for those listeners who don't know Craig. I know he's a, he's, a, he's a big name in the world of tennis now, so lots of you do. He's the money ball of tennis. You know, he's changed the way that we, we all look through the data and statistics that he's brought. You know, he's been working with players, the Berrettinis, the Struffs, the Dustin Browns, and notably spent a few years in the Djokovic camp. The, the current men's world number one. So it's, it's amazing to have you on the
2: show, Craig. Big welcome from us. Well, thank you, Daniel. It's good to share some of those stories and um, bring match data to our sport so we don't guess as much about what's really happening in competition. Absolutely.
0: it's great, uh, Craig. And, and just from myself uh, from Ireland, a uh, really, really big thank you again for, for coming on and giving your time up to us today and. We're really looking forward to getting the insight of uh, your journey as well as a tennis player. And I suppose to start this off, um, I'd really love to get an insight of um, you know, wh- where you began playing tennis and how you got into it um, before we get stuck into the numbers.
2: Sure. Um, I-, I was a little late to tennis. I probably started when I was about 12. Um, I played Australian Rules football. Uh, as a kid, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, and um, started. I found a old wooden racket with broken strings in the back of my cupboard in my bedroom. No idea how it got back there. Mum and dad must have used it at some stage. But this was, and this racket was from the '70s, and uh, broken strings. And found a ball and went to the side of the house and just, you know, there's a little driveway and started hitting up against the wall and uh it's like okay that's that kind of that's okay that'll keep you know keep me going for a while and um about a 200 meter walk there was three triangle and these were right in the middle and sometimes cars had run into each other and spilled down onto the courts but uh i you know i went down to the courts when i was 12 and there was a an older coach george schumack that kind of you know took me under his wing a little bit, and I I started doing some lessons, and then just kind of caught on. Really enjoyed it, you know? And uh, in the summers, we had grass courts. You know, it was 25 grass courts, the Aubrey, um, Aubrey grass courts, where the same club as Margaret Smith, Margaret Court, uh, grew up, and, and all through that region, you know, we've got the Murray River, the biggest river in Australia, running right through that region, so, with all that water, there's a lot of grass courts around. There's probably 200 grass courts within a hundred kilometer radius. So I started, I was the kid that just played every day. You know, there was a very strong um, club environment with juniors and adults all playing together. I was not a part of a junior academy. They just didn't exist. You know, this is, we're talking 78 to 1980. you just go down to the club and whoever's there, you start playing sets and you just play set after set after set until it gets dark. And uh, and that's what I did, you know, seven days a week, just playing lots and lots of sets. So I think playing so many sets helped my mind understand the strategy of the game, helped my mind figure out opponents and and keep my mind over there. Um, I wish I had had some lessons on technique as a younger kid. I think that really would have helped me. But, um overall it was you know it was a real social uh, tennis was a social lubricant for you know country towns in Australia back you know in the late 70s early 80s and everyone played and every everyone in the town played on a Saturday afternoon and I just really fell in love with it and um, that was kind of how it all started back then
1: and do you, and do you think I guess a couple of things come to my mind Craig is is one, do you think that the kids don't play enough sets nowadays? You know, we've touched on the strategy. That would be my first
3: question.
2: Yeah, uh, they don't. There's no way they do. Um, it's Tennis, too, too much has evolved into, you know, it's it's all about time. From four to six, I have my lessons. And, you know, the I, I've run academies. I've, I have had a name on an academy at the Wadonga Tennis Centre in Australia. Um, I ran academy at, the TBRM Racket Club in Dallas and also one here in Austin. So okay. um, I've kind of been on both sides of it, but I made sure when I was running the academies, we got the mix right of, yes, you can bring kids in and have group lessons. There's nothing wrong with that. And having them feed off each other and be, you know, complementary to each other is really good. Um, then you've got to have private lessons. You've got to have one-on-one time with your coach, To refine the process of tactics and technique, but then sometimes you've got to come along and just play sets. That's what it's all about. You know, I think especially you know I'm in Austin, Texas, and I think you know the U.S. overall in the last twenty years has been a country that is obsessed about practicing. So you know, if we've got a ranking of you know in the men, um, you know the top twenty countries in the world, you know that historically in the last twenty years the men. Have not done well um, you know, in the world rankings. It's been a terrible time for the men in the US. But on the practice court, you know, they're probably one in the world. They go and practice and they're good at drilling and they're good at hitting 50 balls cross court, but can they win matches? And
3: yeah.
2: I think we've gone too far that way. I think playing practice sets as part of an academy situation is a great idea.
1: Yeah. And it's that mm-hmm. is I'm just is that because there's too many coaches maybe all trying to make a living that we've almost coaches are guilty of making the structure so tight in, in a way that then gets people to buy. And there's so much competition, I guess, between academies and, and clubs yeah. and coaches that people are always trying to sell something different maybe.
2: Yeah. I, I, I think there's a layer where that, that's correct. But, there's also layers like, you know, you got five nights a week, you got, you know, Monday through Friday. Why not have Tuesday and Thursday night where you're, uh, you know, you're out playing sets and you're still, you know, when you're playing sets, you're still working on your serve, you're still developing your return, you're still working on getting to the net. As a coaching staff, you can put, you know, control layers in there into the playing of sets. You know, there's what's better than. You know, putting in a control factor of, okay, you, you, you're starting love and we understand that you know Roger at love 30 is still going to win 50% of his games. So you two guys go and play two sets, you're at love 30 and let's see if you can win 50% of those games from love 30. Let's see if you can handle some of that adversity. So it's not just, I'm not a huge fan of just open play. I'm a huge fan of playing sets with one little control factor in there. Maybe it's a surplus one forehand. maybe you've got to put in one serve and bowl your game. You know, just some kind of structure yeah. really, really works well. So it's just turning the dial a little bit and saying, yes, we're going to have four or six or eight on the court. Yes, we're going to feed you balls. But yes, you're going to take a private lesson. And yes, you're going to play practice sets. And Sunday afternoon, you can do your open play then. So it's just about getting the mix right.
1: Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree anymore. It's, it's, it's actually what, we, what we've tried to do in terms of a structure at the academy is Tuesday, Thursday, we do a condition set of some way, like you say. Perfect. And then Friday, we do an open match play where results go on social media. You know, We'll sometimes link that in with UTR and try and give them that 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 perfect feel of a match because you, there's no substitute for it, you know, having those yeah. situations. So yourself, yeah. so... Before we fully move into you as coach, you and then data analysis, yeah. where did, did you go to U.S. college as, as a as a tennis player?
2: Yeah, yeah. I my first school I went to my freshman year was Oral Roberts University right. in Tulsa, Oklahoma. <laughs> right on, yeah. Now I'm a country boy. And I'm a country boy, <laughs> and my goodness, the the, the culture shock of going to Oral Roberts University. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Yeah. Um, but it was, like, it was like going to another planet, honestly. Um, you know, For an 18-year-old boy out of a small town in Australia, what in the world is this? Um, greatly enjoyed it, but got out of there after a year. Yeah. Um, I went to a junior college in Southern California um, called Saddleback,
3: okay.
2: and it was in Mission Viejo. Uh, loved that experience. I was all American in singles. I was number two in the state um, in singles, one Southern Cal, one Ojai doubles. Went to school three days a week, was in Tijuana two two other days a week. Had a magnificent time, met met a bunch of great people and really had an enjoyable year and and did great in tennis. And from there, I went to Baylor University in Waco, Texas and did my junior and senior year. Studied journalism, got a degree in journalism. So I bounced around a little bit, but um, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all.
1: And also, massive de- that's massive development to go from starting at age twelve or thirteen to ending up at Baylor. Because I'm an LSU boy. I went. To- okay. I did four and a half years at LSU. And oh, again, excellent! And I'm I'm with you. What What an amazing experience! But you know, yeah. unbelievable. But to to go to Baylor, that's a proper tennis university, Baylor. To good yeah.
2: it, it, it's good university. It's good. Now, there's two parts to that. I played number one on the team both years. We weren't that good back then. Okay. We weren't that good. So we were, you know, we were an emerging program, but, um, you know, still a, a great city. You know, Waco reminded me a lot of Auburn. You know, it's a country town, you know, not that big. And, and I, I greatly enjoyed my time there.
0: And and Craig, and Craig. So, how how did you end up going from? I suppose I'm drifting a little bit, seeping a wee bit into the into the numbers here. But how did you go from studying the journalism, and then how did that verge into the numbers side of things that you've ended up in now?
2: Yeah, um, because they're completely polar opposites. You know, journalism is writing, and and statistics is math, and um, typically people are gonna be one or the other. And I absolutely was not math. You know, I almost failed math in high school. You know, I can, I can joke around. as like, yeah, I can add and I can subtract and, uh, you know, multiplying is, you know, but you know, in all seriousness, um, it's really, people will introduce me as Craig, you're the stats guy in tennis. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a stats guy at all. I, I, I don't gravitate naturally to numbers. The way that it works is, I just, I, I'm a tennis coach and no matter who I'm working with, whatever layer or whatever level, I just want my players to win. That's yeah. it. I just want them to win. So in order to figure out, you know, you look at a big pie chart and this was when I started dabbling on the pro tour, I was working with guys at the challenger level, you know, they're hundred, 150. Um, and I'm like, how do I help these guys win more matches? And you look at a, a chart, and it's like, yes, it's their nutrition. Yes, it's their fitness. Yes, it's their speed. Yes, um, it's the schedule they're putting together. Yes, it's their technique. But when I I looked at all these parts of the pie, I'm like, it's their strategy. It's their understanding of the patterns of play of our sport. And because statistics in tennis weren't recorded before 1991, our sport is super late in figuring out the numbers, but the numbers, you know, numbers explain winning. Numbers are the language of winning in tennis. So if you want to figure out, should I hit a forehand or a backhand? Should I hit a return down the middle or down the line? Should I go to the net or stay back? Should I hit two first serves? You know, all all of these questions we have, numbers are going to tell you the answer. So I gravitated to video. I gravitated to dartfish and tagging matches and then looking at the analytics of those matches to figure out what the best players in the world are doing and, and, and to help the players I'm working with. So... You know, you hear me talk a lot about numbers, but it's really just to to distinguish which patterns are better than others.
1: No, it's really good and it's and, and it's really interesting for me personally, and I would imagine people listening, because it is that you, you can get pigeonholed and it's it's not been a bad pigeonhole because you have been very successful at what you at what you're doing. So how long were you coaching for? I guess before you became a household name, you know, because I guess it was the—I certainly heard of Brain Game Tennis probably five, six, seven years ago, I would imagine—and then, then once you were then certainly Djokovic put you on a working with Djokovic seemed to put you on a different, a different level. So, how long were you coaching before any of this came up?
2: Um, From a coaching standpoint, when I finished college. I worked for Peter Burwash International yeah. out of Houston, Texas. And uh, that was a great grounding for me. It's a company that specializes in coaching at resorts all around the world. So they're working with lower level you know, recreational players and they teach you how to, you know, the, the fundamentals um, of how to how to coach those players. So that was a really good start from my tennis perspective. So that was like 91 well, 92 through 95, I was in Houston, 95 to 2001, I went back to Aubrey and took over the Wodonga Tennis Center, which is right over the river, it's got 52 courts. So I'm, I'm the club president and the only coach and I'm a mad scientist, you know, I've got all these courts, I got a row of 16 grass courts in a row, you know, I can do whatever I want. Um, so I experimented a lot, you know, I'm like, well, you know, can you take pro strategy and deliver it to 12 year old kids. And, at the, you know, these are a lot of questions you go, well, I, I don't think so, but I'm not sure. So a lot of these things I wasn't sure about, I'm like, well, let's, let's do it. Let's trial it. Let's figure it out if it works or not. So those were very important years to, to experiment. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of times, you know, I, I'd, I'd heard forever, you know, it's like four players onto a court with one coach and you can't, you literally cannot do more than that. Well, if I got row of 16 grass courts, can I experiment with having more kids and having less coaches? And I did that and the way you do it, 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 it was very successful. Um, so then I came back to the US in 2002 to about 2010, I was in Dallas running the junior program at the t Racket Racquet Club. And during that time, is when I kind of put the, a website together. Um, it's when I had a DVD presentation. You know, the, how it all started essentially was, you know, I, was, I remember being in Canberra. I was, I was coaching in Canberra at the time. And I had Monique Adamzak, who was two in Australia in 16s. Um, I had another good boy who was top 10 in the, in the state in 18s. And two young 12-year-old boys just kind of starting out. And then a 60-year-old guy. Um, and I'm, I'm working with these people, so I'm going to do the, I'm going to do the same ten-hour block with all of you, same ten-hour block. So, you know, the first two hours was your. Um, we're going to go into the court, and we're only going to work on your technique. That's it. we just two hours to, to tidy up forehands, backhands, serves, and everything. Then the next two hours, you know, we're going to. Um, I'm going to show you this. Um, Agassi presentation. Actually, no, the the, the next two hours are you, you're gonna play. We're gonna record it, but you're gonna play. So I, I, we review that. We go to the computer and we, we look at all your patterns. We look at what you did well and what you didn't. Then the last two hours is, no, the next two hours, seven and eight is, we watch a presentation of Andre Agassi playing parts of points against Scott Draper in the final of Washington in 98, against Kofelnikov in the final of the Aussie Open in 2000 and against Philippousis in the round of 16 at the Aussie Open in 2000. So you get to see Agassi play three different opponents and figure out what's going on. And then in the last two hours, I go play, you stand behind me and you kind of see all of this come live. I turn around and talk to you and tell you what I'm thinking. Well, what's going through my mind. I I preview my shot selection. I, you know, if, if I'm losing points, I tell you if I'm getting angry or upset if I'm figuring it all out. And then at the end of that 10 hours, we figure out what is your next lesson. So you're figuring out, are you weak with forehands or backhands? Are you weak with like, understanding strategy? Are you weak at looking at to the other side of the court? So that kind of coaching put me down a road where it became very individualized for the, for the people um, that I was coaching. And you know, then I put this DVD together of Agassi in these three different situations, and I put a website together. And then one day I wake up and the website's completely gone, completely gone, just vanished. Um, and then I kind of got a little bit more into it and came back to it. And uh, you know, it grew over time. But in 2013, that was the last year that I was full time on court running an academy. Okay. 2014 was literally the start of, of, of this. How you see me today, yeah. specializing in analytics and being the strategy analyst for Wimbledon and the ATP tour, that really started in 2014 when I said, okay, I'm all in with this. I'm going to make the jump, which isn't easy, to say I'm earning the majority of my income on court to I don't want to earn my income on the court anymore. I want to earn it in different ways in in the sport of tennis. So 2014 was really when that started.
3: Amazing.
1: It's a great story. It's It's so nice to hear because it's tennis is a vehicle into so many different things, you yes. know, and, and, to, and to understand different people's journeys that have gone into, it, it's, it's fascinating. And, and so now you working, I guess, as a, as a support act in some ways, you know, how, how have you overcome those challenges? Because you as a coach yourself, going yeah. in working with another coach, we all have egos in this business, you know, in this world. How, how, how have you overcome that?
2: Yeah, it was interesting. So um, I always, you always know in the back of your mind, like you know, I'm working with these guys around 150, 100, but never anyone, you know, is like at the top of the tree. So my plan was actually to, 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 to stop working with players on tour. And I, I thought to myself, you know, I'm kind. Of, when people kind of look at me and figure me out, was like this: this guy does this. It's like this guy helps players that are lower down the down the chain, and um, that that's his specialty. That's that, that's where he fits. And I'm like, I'm gonna extract myself from the tour for two years. Yeah. So to try and cut the cord on that, okay. and then re-cut the cord out of the 150 range and reinsert in the top 10. That was the goal. I had no idea if it was going to work, yeah. but that was the goal. Um, and then, you know, a, a lot of times the success comes down to having somebody in the middle that makes the introduction.
3: Yeah.
2: That's really, really key. Yeah. Um, so I was in Indian Wells. You know, I, I had kind of my business, Brain Game Tennis, on my website, and this is, I think, 2016. Yeah. It was emerging. It was okay. Um, but I had a meeting with Playsite and you know Playsight had just come out and they're doing amazing things in twenty sixteen. Like, what would happen if brain game tennis and playsight kind of joined together and you could go to the playsite terminal and get brain game information out of it. So we had a meeting and Gordon Ewing was one of the people at the meeting and there was a bunch of really nice Israeli guys, this was at Indian Wells. Um, and I, I'm going through kind of what I do, and Gordon hadn't really heard of it. And Gordon kind of stopped me. He goes, "Craig, have you ever talked to Novak Djokovic about this?" I said, "I certainly have not. I, I don't know Novak. Um, don't you know? I, I'd love to. I'll, I'll connect you. I'll connect you to uh, to Novak." With a lot of things, you know, you think, "Okay, that's very nice of you to say that. Probably not going to happen." But, um, but anyway, so. He sent an email, he copied me into Marian Vider. and Marian's has been Novak's long time coach. Um, I was going to Monte Carlo, Marian was going to be in Monte Carlo, so we meet at Monte Carlo. We sit down and um, at the Monte Carlo Bay Hotel and you know it's I like Marian goes, nice to meet you, what do you got? So I pull my computer out and I go, This is what I do. I study patterns, I study strategy, I can tape all of Novak's matches, I can give you pre-match analysis, I can give you post-match analysis. I can give you video on everything, that's I, what I do. So, you know, like a lot of meetings like this, it's, Marian's very impressed, he's never seen anything, he loves the ideas, Like yeah, we're gonna do it, it's great. And you know, that's, so that's April, nothing happens in May or June or July and we just kind of drift apart and then I see him again in August at the US Open and we just kind of jogs the memory and, um, and then in November, You know, everything in tennis changes in November, December. You know, people move on. Relationships change. Um, And then Marian contacted me and said, you know, let's do a trial for three months at the start of 2017. I'm like, sounds good to me. So I meet with Marian and Novak at the Aussie Open in 2017. We go out into the player restaurant area and we sit. And I'm like, you know, I think the best thing I did was when we started the conversation, the best thing is I said, Novak." How can I help you? You know, I do a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. What do you need?
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: And and that framing that, so it's not just me saying, no, back, this is what yeah. I do. It's like, you know, and he said three things. He goes, first of all, I've hardly ever seen myself play. I've hardly seen video. Um, you know, there's things on the court that I think that I'm doing well that I don't know if they're exactly right. So I want you to video me a lot, I want to receive video of me, I want to see my patterns, I want you to figure out and tell me, Craig, this is what you're doing well, Craig, Craig, this is what you're not doing well. So, you know, very humbling, you know, the, again, this guy's wow. already, won, already been number one, he's already had the 2015 amazing year, the 2011 amazing year, he's won 11 grand slams. He's an icon, he's a legend already. Yeah. But he's saying, I got a lot that I can improve upon. I yeah. want to see it, I want to get better. Yeah. Um, the next thing is I'd love to have a, a you know analysis of every opponent I play. there's a lot of guys I go out there and I don't really know them. you know Marianne doesn't really know them. we're you know we don't want to fly blind in any match, so that's what we want. Um, and lastly is like there's a few guys on tour that give me a little trouble. Let's double down on them yeah. and really understand them. I'm like, I, yeah. I hear so that that was kind of where it all started and then. You know, Novik played to Wimbledon in 2017, and he's out for the rest of the year with the elbow injury. So, you know, the, the, the first half was okay. The second half was non-existent. Then the first half of 2018 was terrible. Um, you know, he just wasn't ready to come back and then makes the final in Halle and has match points, then, then, then wins Wimbledon, and he's back. And then, in, you know, in the next couple of years, we win four Grand Slams together. Um, you know, I, we, we have a great relationship in the team. Marion is at all the events. I'm at some of the events, but I'm delivering all the strategy and it, it worked really well. And at the end of 2019, Goran comes on and Goran's just old school. Goran, you know, doesn't get numbers. Yeah. He's, he's just not wired that way. But as a, you know, as a focal point on that team, it's Goran's call on what happens. And yeah. since he doesn't understand the analytics as much and doesn't, you know, doesn't really know it or trust it, he didn't want it anymore, that's fine. Um, you know, he's, he's the boss of that team. So I moved on, I now got four guys I work with, I love it, I'm having an absolute blast, I'm much more deeply embedded with that team, um, and, and, and I'm killing it, just having so much fun. So, you know, th- things, things evolve, you know, tennis is, it goes in waves, and the three years with Novak were fantastic, um, we're still best of friends. We still have amazing respect for each other.
0: And, and you know, the, the journey moved Andre Agassi was in, uh, involved in the team as well for a while. How did, how did he uh, reciprocate the numbers?
2: Um, Andre, I, I was there. I was at the training camp uh, when Andre and Radek Stepanik, were, you know, their first day, first day on the job with Novak. We had a training camp to get ready for the season. Uh, so it was the It was December 2017. Um, two thousand and seventeen. Two things. There was there was part of it that's like you know Andre. When, when you when you and I see Andre, you know sometimes he pops into the U.S. Open and does commentary, and and the things that come out of his mouth were just so amazing, you know. And I said when I first met him at the training camp, I said Andre, you know, I, a lot of what I I do has been heavily influenced by you. Um, I have this dvd presentation of you playing these three guys and you play them all differently and and and, you know you you manufacture your game to plug into opponents and you know you had a massive impact on me um and so there was part of part of it i'm like this is going to be great but right from the start there was part of me i'm like i don't see this relationship working with novak i i just you know, there's, there's, and sometimes it's like you say, why, Craig? And you're like, I can't explain it. I don't really know. But, you know, it lasted to Indian Wells and then it was done. And I had that feeling right, you know, from the first couple of days in Monte Carlo. Not because anything, yes. it was just, oh, it's all about a fit. You know, you've got a round yeah. peg and a round hole and that fit to me, just didn't seem like it, it was going to last, and and they could have proved me wrong. Um, and, and you know, I certainly did everything that was required of me during that period of time. But I kind of saw it coming, and it didn't work. And that's life. That's life.
1: Craig, it's it's fascinating. I have so many different like rabbit holes I'm going to go down because <laughs> there's, 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 there's so many there's so many yeah. things that you you speak so well about and so, and so openly. One thing that definitely is on my mind is are you, are you delivering this data? Or are you interpreting the data and then delivering the messages from the data? How how does that work? And are you delivering direct to the players? Or yeah. Are you delivering to the team that are then, you know, how are the messages
2: going? It, it There's subtleties with each team on, on, on what you do, but my role is – my role is, is, is like I'm uh, I, I'm the owner of a whiskey factory
3: yeah.
2: and my job is to distill. I'm a distiller. Yeah. I go and look at all this information, this amazing information and distill it into a few words or a couple of short two minute videos and I deliver the strategy. So yeah. it's, it's not even delivering the numbers. It's delivering the strategy and here's the numbers that yeah. support it the numbers are the foundation of the strategy. So, um, you know, when I'm delivering strategy for Novak or Mateo or, or Jan Leonard, it's um, it's typically done as a PDF. It, I set I set it up so that I can be on site doing it with them sitting next to me, or I can be here in Austin in this chair in this room yeah. um, and they're in Shanghai or they're in, you know, some other part of the world, you know, in yeah. St. Petersburg. So, I don't want to be at every event. Uh, you know, I've got a family. i got two kids. I don't, you know, I love the pro tour, but there's no way I'm spending 30 weeks a year. Yeah, yeah. But I'll go to the events that are, are good for my business. So I deliver the strategy directly to the player and directly to the head coach. Um, they, I, I love to do it the night before. So both, you know, everyone on the team has time to digest it. Then they can look at it the next day. It's typically... to look like this i have a summary at the top
3: yeah
2: four or five points bullet points bold bullet points one or two sentences with each bullet point um next you're going to find video video is typically here's your best here's here's where this guy's weak and under on the video it's annotated in dartfish so you know I I want to write one line at the bottom to show them this, you know, you got a point, maybe a 10 shot rally with a few things happening, but when you read the one line at the bottom, you know what to focus on. You know what my intent is to make you watch the video. So I go into Dartfish, I extract the video, I make the movie, I put the, the writing at the bottom, and I like to keep it between two and three minutes. So they'll watch that, you know, for instance, you know, the ABCD at the back of the court, that. You know that, that terminology, the one through eight and the service boxes, um, it, it's all there. Yeah,
3: it's amazing because the
1: because it, it, that's the thing in my head. It's the interpretation of it is massive. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and in, in these, you know, any statistic and any data in any in any field, if interpreted the wrong way, can yeah. can be dangerous. And is that now as your your numbers are out there you know where we're all we all talk about them. we all talk about zero to four seventy percent you know all of these and i'd like to get into some of those definitions in, in a little bit have you found that they have been it has been a bit dangerous if in the wrong hands and not interpreted in the right way
2: um <laughs> nice question nice question daniel so Listen, first of all, they're facts. You know, it, it, those numbers came from the 2015 Australian Open. Um, that was a pretty fast tournament. Uh, yeah. You know, 70 2010, as we look now, is on the faster end of life, not the slower end. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, it's just the facts. I think where if I could go back in time to 2015, and, and again, you know, I learn as everybody does when we do these things, you know, the, the first thing that struck me, and, and again, with this data, you don't know how important it is. You don't even know what it means. You don't even know it's like, is this important? Is it not? So IBM collected, they put it at the bottom of a, of a match stat sheet, but they don't put it in tournament totals. And they don't record it on every single court. They record it on the bigger courts. You know, for some reason, you know, if you're on court 18, there's like, we're not sending somebody out there to count that. Even yeah. though it's a Grand Slam and, you know, the Slam's walking away with $50 million. We're not going to pay a guy $8.50 to walk to court 18.
3: Yeah.
2: Completely nuts, but it's true. So the first thing I saw when I added, you know, I had to go individually and put it all into my spreadsheet and I sit there and he's like, here's the first minute anyone in the world, any person in tennis sees 70-20-10. And I look at it and I'm like, what does it mean? Yeah. So I, I, I look at it. The first thing that I look at is like, these players are the best players in the world. They're the most consistent players in the world. We obsess about consistency. We talk about it, you know, as, as, as part of, you know, one of the most important things in our sport. Um, and, you know, the first thing is like seven points out of 10 mean the player touches the ball maximum of two times. Okay. That's not a lot. That's not a lot of touching. And then you go, well, what are those touches? Because when we go to the practice court, those, the touches are, a rally ground stroke, and a, a rally forehand, and a rally backhand. The touches in zero through four is a serve, a return, yeah. mm-hmm. serve plus one, and a return plus one. A serve plus one is not a rally forehand. You don't have a, a, a rally forehand preceding a rally forehand. You have a serve preceding it. it it's very important what precedes the shot, where, you know how comfortable you are.
3: Yeah.
2: So it's, it's a different animal. It's a, it's a different environment. And then you look at 10%, in nine plus of which we obsess about on the practice court um so you're like okay our practice court is broken what well, why are we spending 90% of our time in practice literally working on something that happens 10% so you have i understand that there's coaches out there and there's systems the spanish system yeah. that live and breathe consistency shot tolerance repetition grinding patience suffering yeah. That, that's, that's who we're, and then we got this guy, Craig coming on saying, no, that's not any good anymore. Well, like, that's gonna ruffle some feathers. You know, people have said, you know, they, they've put their stake in the ground and said, this is what I stand for. And then for the first time we have match data and it goes against what they stand for. I get it, I get yeah. it. So if I could do it again, and that's what I'm doing now I'm saying, okay, I'm not advocating in the slightest that you should be trying to end points in the first four shots. I'm yeah. not. I'm yeah. not telling you to, you know. I'm not telling you to hit more winners in the first four shots. I'm absolutely not. I'm telling you essentially the a complete opposite is. I want you to survive the first four shots. There's, there's different. There's four different battlefields. So you know, if you think about it like this, tennis is a war. Yeah.
3: You've
2: got four battlefields. If you're Germany, you have got a battlefield against England to the north, a battlefield with France to the west, to Russia to the east, and to whoever's to the south, whoever they want to go and invade to the south. Four different battlefields, maybe one's on water, one's in mountains, one's flat, and who knows what the other one is. Well, it's exactly the same in tennis. You've got the first serve battlefield. First serve battlefield is I, your ideal ending to a point when you hit a first serve is um, you're either going to get a return error, which you love, the ball's going to come short, and you're going to play a three-shot rally, which you love, or you're going to be at the, at the net. Those three things you want to have happen the most. If it's a second serve, it's completely the opposite. We don't want a double fault. We don't want to make a serve plus one error. And we want to get past that shot and still survive, still be alive. First serve returns, put it in play, and hit a return plus one backhand in the court. Second serve return, attack it deep down the middle and hit a return plus one forehand. Four immensely different battlefields. So, I, am, I want you, you know, so then the, the, the next step of that is, you know, it's like, okay, i go and see Craig talk for an hour. What, what's the number one thing that you could say when he comes away is, the first two times you touch the ball mean more to winning and losing the point than anything that follows. Yeah. So, I want you to survive the first four shots. I, you know, the end, the end game of all this research is, we want people practicing the first four shots being more, proficient at them and extending out of them and playing more points in five through eight because you got better defense in the first four shots. I think the message in 2015 and 2016 and 2017, I didn't get that message out enough. So then it's like, well, you know, somebody, if somebody wants to bend it and say, okay, Craig wants you to hit winners in the first four shots. I saw that, you know, it's like, and people saying, you know, the pros can hit 80% winners in the first four shots, but it's 80% errors, which is completely false. It's it's 80% errors for everyone on the planet yeah. in the first four shots. Um, and I want you to get better at that. Yeah. So I learn, I get better, I deliver a more exact message, um, and, and we all get better. So
1: i think it's look i think it's great and, and it's 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 Johnny, are you still
2: awake over there it's no like, I'm, I, I, I'm
0: i'm i'm li- i'm mesmerized by this man i'm just listening it, i'm soaking it, all this information It's, brilliant, it's unbelievable. Amazing, brilliant. Yeah. but it comes to me i suppose
1: on a, on a macro level it, it yeah. comes down to the interpretation of the coach to be able to do that so they're absolutely like so take my personal i i love all the statistics. I love them. I'm, I'm a big advocate of it. And, and But I also know my job as a coach is to take that and be able to deliver that and interpret that with different players, different game styles, different personalities. What do they want to hear? And that actually, and then on a more micro level of the communication direct with the player, I share a, a little story that's not relevant to zero to four, or anything like that, but it's, it's relevant to giving how we deliver a message to a player, and I worked with a guy, and he was he was a uh, junior Grand Slam champion in doubles, quarterfinals Australian Open, good player, and he was yeah. playing in the Futures event, and I was traveling with another guy who used to play for University of Texas, so there's a few connections there with Ukraine, yeah. and and we got done some we done got the kind of college reports on this American guy who was playing, who was you know he was very right hand dominant on his backhand. And he struggled to access the short, wide angle on a passing shot. So I'm taking the stats of the match. And we talked about the strategy of really coming in. And when, he, when you come in on his backhand, sit on the line. So he's come in 28 times in the match. And he's won, he's won 27 of them at this point. Okay. And he's a, he's a set He's a set and 4 to up. Set and 4-2 up. And he hits a slice approach, break point down. And the guy kind of mangles this backhand short cross. And he turns to us and he goes, great information, guys. Thanks for the information. <laughs> and, and, and the reality is that information that we gave him actually won him the match. But in yeah. that moment, players... So I, going back a few minutes, Greg, if, if you're telling all that Djokovic... Andy Murray's favorite serve at 30 all is wide and he, mm-hmm. and he aces of tea. Mm-hmm. It, it, how,
2: how do
1: those, how do these big yeah. guns take, take that
2: data uh, yeah. that information? How's that delivered in a software? It's a great question and, and, and Novak is the poster child for the answer of this. So I, um, when, when we first started delivering this, you know, I had the conversation with Novak, I, I'm like, okay, and he was huge into knowing where the guy's going to serve on big points. Huge. Yeah. Always, always had to have that information. And if it was 50 50, it's fine as long as he knows. But let's say there's a favorite location. Dominic team out wide in the ad court at 30 40. Know that. Sit on that. He's going to hit a hard kicker. I want you to return back cross court to see. Don't recover to the middle of the court. Stay in, stay in the ad court and hit a 4 as the next shot. Yeah. So I got it. Now, I said, if team goes down the T, that's to your advantage. And he, yeah. and he kind of looked at me like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, every player in the planet has favorite locations, everyone. And they want to go to that favorite location under pressure.
3: Yes.
2: And if they don't go there, it means they're going there because you're taking them away from that favorite location. Yeah. You, it is your benefits for players to go to secondary locations on big points so if you see him go somewhere that you're not expecting you're winning the battle you're winning the war you're forcing him out of his favorite patterns in the big moments and so that conversation immediately diffused for for, for three years immediately diffused any 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 kind of idea in his head is like well craig's not on it with this information because you know it's like putting every strategy in tennis into two blocks primary and secondary yeah. so that's a primary pattern do that a lot that's going to deliver a win percentage that drop shot that lob that slice back end approach that's a secondary pattern yeah so you know putting everything into this is the favorite patterns or primary patterns and secondary patterns help tremendously and, and for novak if somebody did something that was unusual he processed it the right way it's like oh yeah, yeah he's he's having to do something that he doesn't want to do in the big moments let's play 10 of those big moments the percentages will be with me.
1: it's very clever reframing and that's and that i think is is my the point that i wanted to get across and obviously you do that very well and the, these top all you top guys in the world do this very well because it, how it's communicated
2: Daniel, one other quick story before I forget about it. I remember sitting also, the, the, here's the flip side of that story. I gave a strategy to a player against Roger. And um, it was then they had to play uh, at the US Open on, on center court on Arthur Ashe. So I go and join the coach's box of the other player. And I say to him, I go, you know, love all. A lot of times Roger's going to serve out wide. He's, gonna, he's been hitting slice. And, you know, in his two matches before he's hitting slice, he hit slice out there. The first point of the match, Roger goes down the tee. And the guy's, I'm in the coach's box, the guy's on the far end, right? He's on the far end, he's not in front of me. It, the guy goes, Roger says an ace, so this guy overdoses on the wide. Roger yeah. may have, he's like this, Roger may have even seen him. He gets ace down the tee and he's like, good job, guy, first point of the match. <laughs> the match is over. The match, the match just ended. If this guy is giving us a thumbs up, yeah, yeah." It's so rude. When players turn around and do that, it's so incredibly rude and, and disrespectful. And I don't know how, how you know, teams, you no, know, I mean. let players get away with that.
1: But it, but it coaches, and I guess it is, it goes back back to my misinterpretation question. I would imagine there is a lot of coaches and players that can take these things. And if they're not communicated yeah. in a sense, and ultimately it yeah. comes down, we have to know our player, don't we? We yeah. have to know all the players we work with. we have to know them and how to get the messages across
0: yeah because I, I yeah, suppose when you also when you're looking at um the numbers and i i I'd be like Dan as well just would have taken a lot of those, that information as well into my own academy here in Ireland and with players that were you know that 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 we have here, but you know you, you've got so many different personalities in the game and different different game styles you've counter-punchers, aggressive baseliners, serving volleyers, net rushers, would you say that the, the, the numbers um, would entail to play more aggressive tennis? Or yeah. encouraged to play more aggressive tennis? forcing errors. errors. Yeah. And do you think that, again, as I say, with, with that, with that kind of... How can I word this properly? So, like, if, if you're looking at the numbers, and um, with that, encourage you encourage it to be let's say you wanted to be a, a, a counterpuncher, or you're naturally more of a counterpuncher type of a guy or a girl. Um, would the numbers take away that personality, Or, would you, how, would you inco- or how would you incorporate that into a yeah. counterpuncher style of a, a personality uh, like or it. player?
2: I like it. First of all, um, I absolutely love that our sport has such a huge variety of playing styles. Um, I I think that's a big plus of our sport that doesn't get enough credit. Um, I think also the playing surfaces, having different playing surfaces is a massive attraction to our sport. Lately, the surfaces have all come together in court speed. And I don't think there's anything wrong with having some really fast courts and some really slow courts, having a little bit more diversity. um, And that may come out of... uh, you know, it, it may be a byproduct of, of this period of time. Um, so when you're working with a player, there, there's, there's, again, there's different layers. There, there's, there's a layer of statistics that say it doesn't matter if it's a man, a woman, or Roger Federer, or Diego Schwarzman, or Ivo Karlovic. It doesn't matter if it's two kangaroos playing on the dark side of the moon. Th- these are the analytics that underpin tennis. Yeah. You're not going to change it. You can't bend these. This layer of analytics. It's what our sport is. So you recognise those and say, okay, these don't change. What are then they? You say, they? Um, well, for instance, you're all you know if for 20 years. You're going to win 46 to 47 percent of baseline points. That's not going to change. Yeah. You know, and the way that the way that it's recorded, that IBM does it. If I'm playing you, Daniel and yeah. we, we, we play a point and you win it. The statistician on the side of the court is gonna look at you and say, well, Daniel's standing at the baseline and they will log that as a baseline point for you. Yeah. But they'll look at me and if I'm at the baseline, it'll be a baseline point, but if I'm at the net, it'll be a net point. So in the same point, we could yeah. have one player logged as a net point and one as a baseline because it's, it's, they're not linked. And what's the definition of baseline and what's the definition of net? Again, it's a gray area of where you're standing. It's where you're standing at the end of the point. So because the net play always delivers a higher win percentage, that's what knocks the baseline down. So you look at the averages. I I did a a blog, I think two years ago. I went in and predicted, and and we should find this afterwards. I'll send it to you. I went in and predicted the, the percentages.
3: Yep.
2: Um, I think it was Wimbledon. I, I actually forget. Well, it was a grand slam. I went and said, okay, I'm going to predict there's 27 um, things that are going to come out of this. I'm going to predict every one of them before it starts. And mm-hmm. I think I was dead right to the exact number on a, on a half of them. On, I think around 80%, I was either right or off by one percentage point. Yeah. These things aren't changing. The They're not changing are not changing so you know your average net win percent is going to be sixty-five. Your average baseline is going to be around forty-seven. The average of first serves in is going to be sixty-one for the men.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, the average of you know these things just don't change. Yeah. Now, if I'm coaching Leighton Hewitt, and I'm also coaching, um, you know, maybe Richard Krychek, yeah. of course I'm coaching these two guys differently. Completely yeah. different skill sets. And, you know, they could be one and two in the world.
3: Yeah.
2: And and, and yeah. they're going to do things differently. And I love that. I love I, I love that we have these different styles. So, um, you know, that's part of the art of coaching is to look at a player and say, okay, this is what we're not going to change in your sport. This is what it's going to be. But, you know, th- this is where you're going to excel in the sport. Like Clayton Hewitt, you know, became number one in the world without a great server, without a great forehand. Yeah. He still did. He still spent a year at number one. Um, so, again, having the different ways of, of understanding is a really big deal. Well, good. So, I remember Federer, Federer saying, I might
1: have been two or three Wimbledons ago, he said that he got all of the, the match statistics from his next opponent. And he said not one of them had served volleyed more than 2% of points.
3: Yeah. And, yeah.
1: He, and he said, like, but I chip I chip every return. So, why the statistic, like you're saying this is, this is you know, it's strong, it's strong evidence. It's yeah. strong, strong evidence. Why aren't people coming to the net more? Why don't more people serve and volley? Um,
2: th- there's, there's, there's an official thing called crowd mentality, and it essentially is predicated on this. If you have a hundred people, and you have five of the hundred say something false, Whatever it is, say whatever it is, they can convince the other. They can convince the other ninety-five that it's true. So, when you have a game style like Leighton Hewitt wins Wimbledon, and his game style is not to come forward, um, and, and all of a sudden it's like, well, because Leighton Hewitt now is not coming forward to win Wimbledon, then our whole sport's changing. Um, and then you look at serve and volley keep dropping, and it feeds on itself. You get McEnroe saying you can't serve in volley. You get Federer saying you can't serve in volley. You get Davenport saying you can't serve in volley. Oh, you know, there's a 2013 article in the Los Angeles Times interviewing all three of them. They all, they all stick a knife through it. Okay. And so serve in volley in 2002 goes from about 30% to a decade later to about 6% for the men. And but you look at the win percentage, and it's 67% every single year. So you get things wrong just by looking out there and saying, well, the guys aren't serving in volley anymore. And and, and we we assume that they know what they're doing and they don't know what they're doing. There's no evidence. The win percentage has not dropped. There's there's, there's always, in in tennis, there's there's two two pillars of analytics. One pillar is we just count things that happen. And if you count things that happen, serving volley's dead because it's just dropped off a cliff. That pillar is secondary. The number one pillar is Percentage of points won. If I went and played with a spoon and won 55% of the points, don't play with a spoon again. Who cares?
3: Yeah.
2: So, serving volley has always delivered a healthy win percentage. But we don't look at that, or we forget about that, or we conveniently forget about that. And we have an opinion can't serve and volley in today's game. It's absolute garbage. Just wrong.
1: Yeah. So, and because if we, what if we take Nadal? Medvedev, it was over 80 points that they came to the net, wasn't it? US Open 2019. Yeah. Uh, Are we going to see more of that now that you, you, you take taken Adal Medvedev and they're cancelling each other out to a degree, you know, the way, in, in certain ways of playing? So I guess in order to force an error, people have to do something different. So do you think we're going to see more and more people starting to come
2: forward again? Yeah, I, of course. All it takes is. Um... I've got it right here. I've got the actual numbers. Uh, so they served and volleyed 49 times. Seven, five, six, three, five, seven, four, six, six, four. Yeah. Neither of these guys had a history of serving volley in that yeah. tournament. And they, in the first couple of sets, it, it wasn't about serving and volley. But they got to the point, both of these guys were pressured to the point, it's like, if I stay back, I cannot feel like I'm gonna win the point. And both of them felt the same way. Yeah, yeah. So the baseline, Nadal won only 47% of his baseline points in that final. At yeah. won 77%. Nadal serves and volleys 20 times in the final. Medvedev serves and volleys 29 times. Medvedev wins 76% serving and volleys and only 39% at the baseline. Um, Nadal wins 85% serving and volleying, and only 47% at the baseline. I mean, that's what, what more do you need? What more do you need? There is all the, you know, the renaissance served in volley, the renaissance man is Rafael Nadal. Yeah. And it's Daniel Medvedev. It's two guys yeah. that literally said, if you, uh, if you cannot craft an advantage in the back of the court, what are you going to do? We're yeah. going to serve in volley 49 times in the Grand Slam final. That's yeah. what we're going to do.
1: I need to make a comeback. It's what I used to do. <laughs> you know, about, but I, won, I won one Futures event as a singles player. I won a few. Good Congrats dogs. on that, good job. It was in India, and it was lightning. And it was like, it was, it was, it was, made, it was made for me. One thing, I, I don't get a chance to speak to you, Craig. it was the first time I've got a chance to speak to you. I can't let you go because, without asking you, because it bothers me, this, and it reads, for okay. me. Novak Djokovic, arguably the greatest baseline player of all time, male player, arguably the greatest mover of all time. I still don't understand, and I need you to almost speak to me like I'm a dummy, how he's <laughs> only won 48%. Of, it's 48% for Novak in his career, baseline
2: points. Is that correct? Um, I don't, actually, I don't. I don't know that, I, uh, I don't think I have that stat, but it would probably be right, it would it, it'd be right around there, it'd be 48, It'd be certainly in a window between 48 and 52. So I can't get my head around it. Okay, so let, let, yeah, let, let me explain it. So when Roger won the Australian Open in 2017, he only won 48%, Serena won the Aussie Open in 2017, she only won 48%. When Andy Murray won the US Open in 2012, beating Djokovic in the final, he only won 50% for the tournament, 50%. This is no, where I need, to, I need to understand the definition. I can't, it doesn't make sense. Daniel, it's real way. simple. Good, I've got your answer. It's real simple. Again, it's not that that statistic is not Novak. And I'll give you one, one more statistic that will rock you before I even get to that. So when, when Novak wins the 2018 US Open, in long rallies of nine plus, he wins 131 points. He loses 133. In long rallies no, he's where he's supposed GPs. to be, yeah, yeah. That, that, it's amazing. He has a losing record in zero to four. He was plus 105. Yeah, yeah. Plus 105 yeah. in zero to four. So what it shows you that there's there's a few a few different things here is that um, ba- the the baseline statistic is not fully explained to people to, to anyone. It's, yeah. it's baseline versus baseline and net. And the net is always going to deliver a win percentage. So if you just did baseline to baseline, Novak's numbers would be higher. Yeah. So if, if, if we've got it, and we record that. I have a new, all of the recording that I do of, of matches and, and, and the analytics, basically everything I've done for Novak in the past three years, and, and Matteo Berrettini and the Unleaded Struff last year, we're bringing to juniors and we're bringing to clubs and we're bringing to academies. So the fact that you're in Spain or you're in Ireland and a junior goes out and play, you can upload that that night. It'll be tagged. It'll be online the next day and you'll have all the brain game match analytics. So we'll talk about that in, in, in a, in, at another time. But that's, that's days away, weeks away. It's, that's coming right now. But the statistic in your head is Novak's at the baseline, the opponent's at the baseline, and Novak's going to win most of those points. Yeah. True, but it's so much closer than you think. See, what naturally happens is the longer, this is something that's really important to understand, the longer a point goes, the more even the outcome naturally becomes. If you're wearing a 12-shot rally down, you've hit six, I've hit six, where's the advantage? Yeah, yeah. We're in a 50-50 battle. So so what happens is I did a study of um, when players win zero through four win five through eight win nine plus did and, and winning the match so the, the, here it is you had, let's say we got a hundred juniors yeah. in the room we asked them question one did you win your match all hundred juniors put their hand up so okay what, what did the data set is only winners only winners data set two we asked them the second one is did you win zero through four did you win five through eight? and did you win nine plus in your match We know you won three and three we know yeah. that but we'll so, say, you know we we sent John out there, and he recorded it. We know you won forty points in zero through four and, and lost thirty five. So tick, you won the battle. And nine plus you won eight and you played a one ten. Cross, you lost the battle. So here's all you need to know. In five grand slams, the match winner won zero through four over ninety percent of the time. yeah The match winner won zero through uh, one five through eight, about sixty five percent of the time. The match winner won five plus, won nine plus, only 55%. And again, you're starting at a 50-50 battle. So long rallies and grinding are not on the first line yeah. of, winning, of winning matches. Yeah. I did an analysis at 2017 of Roland Garros, the number one analytic that, for men and women that says, if you do, I just wrote an ATP story about it. It's coming out tomorrow. Uh, here we go. So you would think Rafael Nadal, you would think in zero through four or five through eight or nine plus you'll win matches at Roland Garros, it's winning zero through four. Yeah.
1: I I'm completely with you on that. I've tried to not to not to prove you wrong on that, but I've that that stuff I've we've done our own charting on that to make sure you know in our heads but still the baseline one is the one i need to get my head around
2: well i'm gonna i'm gonna give you one more i just wrote a story on it and i've got where isn't rafael nadal the best
1: take nine plus right so zero to four he's the master isn't he
2: well it's it, it's it's not for him it's in five through eight so for I, i'm looking at it right now so he wins 55 percent of his points in nine plus which isn't bad which isn't bad in five through eight He's at fifty nine percent. Okay. So Nadal is the king of five through eight. And again, we're trying to get and he's and he's. Uh, let me give you his his zero through four numbers. He's at fifty three.
3: Okay. So
2: he's about in zero through four and nine plus. He's about the same. But in in, in five through eight, he's at fifty nine. There's no player at any rally length better than Nadal in five through eight.
3: Right. Okay. So
2: five through eight is Nadal hitting. The ball in three shots or four shots yeah so you just distill it down yeah he was the best at the best at the best of doing what it's Nadal not hitting more than three or four shots and not hitting less than three or four shots yeah it's in that zone and in that zone is patterns of play it's the two one pattern it's yeah. I push you back I push you here I finish you there it's having an assist it's not just one knockout punch and it's not ten punches it's I've got my assist in line so Again, it just shows you Very we're good. always learning. Very good. And what, tre- what trends and norms have
1: changed on the women's tour over the last over the last two or three years? And do you see the women's tour changing?
2: Yeah, the women's tour follows the men's tour. Okay. Um, you know, the women's tour are hitting more serve plus one forehands. The women's tour, you know, the men are about at the elite level. There's seventy-five percent forehand winners. Um, at a at a normal level, there are about sixty-eight percent forehand winners. And the women in general, about 63% falling winners. But sometimes I've seen points played, you know, I think it was a couple of years ago at the Australian Open in round one. I think the men were at 66% in 0 through 4, and the women were at 66%. So sometimes I see the women, if it's Serena or Maria or, you know, some of these other players that, you know, they're they're delving more into 0 through 4. They're not staying back and rowing and hoping. And they're not just relying on backhands. They're evolving away from those two areas.
0: And, and Craig, do you see the, the, this transition in, um, of these numbers going into the junior tours as well, like Tennis Europe, of ITF? Of course. Yeah, well,
2: why not? Again, you know, you're going to get some coaches that say, well, Craig, I love your stats, but you're talking about Novak. I coached 14-year-old girls. It has nothing to do with it. Not true. Not true at all. We're all on a curve we're on a curve towards the promised land. And at some stage on that curve, you know, it's the, the difference. My, my idea is like, Craig, what's really separates junior tennis and pro tennis? The speed of the ball and the speed of the foot. You want the same patterns. The same patterns are still there. You know, juniors are, are missing around 30% of um, all returns. The pros are missing about 30% of all returns. So just, you know, think of Novak and Roger and Rafa just reducing their speed. You know, just put, slow the, put them in Darfish and go, I want to watch you at 75% speed. And you put them next to a junior match that, you know, and all of a sudden the speed of the ball's the same as the speed of the feet. We, we want those juniors to copy the speed of these guys over here um, with, with the patterns of play. So, you know, just you're right, essentially running very similar patterns. Will there be some small differences? Yes. Yes, but in general, coaching the same. Last question
1: before quick fire: You've been amazing, giving us so much time, Craig. Thank you Where's so you, much, Daniel. Um, in it's terms good. of with juniors, and I guess with some pro players as well, is there a danger that all of these numbers take away from the independent thinking that, I guess, ultimately the players are the decision makers out there, and, yeah. and we know that tennis also is a game of Certain moments and feelings, to a degree, you know, is there a danger that we can
2: send people away from that? So here's the danger. Here's what's going to happen: is the analytics? Again, I explained right at the start. The analytics are there only to serve the purpose of figuring out which strategy is better. That's it. They, they they, we're not here to idolize numbers. We're here to help teach patterns of play. Yeah. And, and those patterns of play are you, you, uh, 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 understood through years of experience. Go play for 10 years and have 10 years of failing at something before you figure out, I'm not gonna do that anymore. Yeah. I'm on defense in my back end going down the line. We'll try that as a kid a lot, it doesn't work. We need to go cross court. So what, what the numbers are gonna do is explain, we're gonna short circuit or accelerate the, the experience, you know, you need 10 years of experience to figure this stuff out, but the numbers and the video and the analytics and the strategy, we can, we can short-circuit that and, and make it faster and make players better, quicker. Yeah. So let's, let's say the analytics, I think the viewpoint we need is the analytics are going to show us the stupid things we do on the court that we shouldn't be doing. Here's all the low-percentage things. Yeah. Don't do them.
3: Yeah,
2: yeah. Stay away from them. Yeah. And let the analytics teach there. You know, Novak, you know, if he's sitting in the middle of the court with the forehand, he's got 20 things he can do. Yeah. He'll do one of them eight times out of 10, and, two, and another one one time, another one one time. But he just gravitates to, the, to that one pattern because he knows it's delivering the highest win percentage. Whereas juniors, they're going to try 10 different things on that ball. Yeah. You know, and they, they probably need to, yeah, to yeah. figure out which ones are bad. Whereas we can use the analytics to say, we're going to remove six of them for you. Don't (laughs) do this. So we can make you quicker, better. Yeah, very good. And one bit of advice for juniors. Don't miss the first two balls you touch. The first two times you touch the ball, put them in the court.
0: Very good. Unbelievable.
1: John's going to take you through a quick fire. We've got a couple of quick fire questions for you, Craig. Maybe,
2: John. Nothing
3: too tough.
0: Are you ready, Craig?
3: Yeah.
0: Okay. Underarm serve or overarm serve? Underarm. Net or baseline? Net. ATP
3: or Davis Cup? ATP. Singles or doubles?
2: I love doubles. God, I love I love playing doubles but I I want to sit there and watch singles. Singles. <laughs> Server return? From the mind my, my my new coaching mind return.
0: Last one, one rule you would change in tennis. Uh
2: I would well, it's kind of a rule but it's a stat. I would flick the unforced error onto Mars so we never see it again. It's ridiculous. Um, so if that counts, count, get rid of Winner, error, done. If it was for that, Craig, I would have never have met my wife
1: because <laughs> I met my wife at Wimbledon. And okay. I, was, I was in, uh, after my sophomore year in college, <laughs> I came back and I worked for IBM at Wimbledon to do the match stats to, Excellent. So, so as I was sitting there Trying to flirt with this girl at the side of me, I was trying to work out whether it was an unforced error <laughs> or a forced error. So, and then here we are, all these years later, married with three kids. So, excellent, a great start. Yeah, Craig, you've been an absolute star, you know, and a big, a big thank you for today, but also for bringing. I genuinely believe that this is, this has changed the way that tennis coaches are thinking globally. You know, obviously the interpretation is is massive but it certainly, it's certainly, it's helping us all and keep up the fantastic
2: work you're doing. Thank you so much. Daniel and John, my pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. Um, one day soon, hopefully we can get together in Ireland and in Spain and uh, catch up in person.
0: we will absolutely love that, Craig. Have to get you over to Dublin, Ireland.
2: Yeah, I've been once, I, I, my, we, we did a tour, um, I was coaching at Wimbledon. My wife was with my boy. He was three at the time. And we did we did Wimbledon. Then we went to Paris. Then we did a tour around um, Ireland. And uh, we we had an absolute blast. We're, we're definitely coming back once all this Corona stuff is uh, in the past. So, thank you.
1: I can't wait, man. Yeah, very I'll, good. I'll, I'll cut it there. Craig, thanks so much for your time. Okay. It's lovely to meet thanks, you.
0: Thanks, guys. Take, Take care. care. Thanks, so, th- thanks thank a million, you. Craig. Thanks very yes. much. Thank you. Yeah. See you, lads.
1: Massive thank you to Craig O'Shaughnessy for that. We hope you enjoyed that episode. Lots of, lots of learnings. One of, one of my big learnings is that it, it came it came from Craig's desire to want to help players to win more. You know, and I think we we all have that, obviously, in, in, a, legal, in a legal way. And and there's lots of different ways that we can gain those, gain those edges. And if you're able to take this data and interpret it the correct way with your players, then you can really start to dig and find find the different layers of help that is needed. And it brings a lot more purpose to our training court, which in turn will hopefully help our players perform better on the match court. So hope you all enjoyed that show. I want to say a big thank you to everyone's support, uh, the messages that come through uh, mean a lot to myself and John. You know, this is something that, you know, we we are doing in our own time. We're, we're very privileged to be able to speak to these amazing guests. Um, and we're doing it to give everybody the opportunity to, to learn from these guests. So if you're enjoying the show, please keep spreading the word. Tell your friends about it. Um, comment, review via the platform that you're using. All of those things help get it into the right hands. And a big thank you for now and look out for lots more exciting guests to come. My name's Dan Kiernan, my co-host John McGann, we're Control the Coronables. Thank you guys.